I want to start this morning by making a very important observation. Almost everyone, even those who don't claim to believe in God, they will agree that from the standpoint of human history, Jesus Christ is the most significant person who has ever walked the face of this earth. In his book, Jesus Through the Centuries, Yale historian Jaroslav Pelikan puts it like this, Jesus of Nazareth has been the most dominant figure in the history of Western culture for almost 20 centuries. If it were possible with some sort of super magnet to pull out of that history every scrap of metal bearing at least a trace of his name, how much would be left? Well, to answer his question, not much. Without the impact of Jesus' life, human culture would collapse like a like a house of cards. I mean, consider the, the following facts that show his amazing influence. Jesus never wrote anything other than writing on the dirt that we talked about last week when they were trying to get the lady who was caught in adultery stoned. He never wrote anything, and yet some of the world's greatest works of literature were inspired by his life. Jesus never painted a picture, and yet some of the finest paintings from, from da Vinci and Michelangelo were inspired by him. Jesus composed no music, and yet Handel and Beethoven and Bach reached their highest perfection as they wrote songs in worship of him. And although Jesus only taught on this earth for three years, his influence looms larger than Socrates, Plato, Aristotle combined, who taught for a combined total of 140 years. Another ironic, ironic fact about Jesus is that almost every world religion makes a special place for him, and that's something you don't see in any other context. For example, even though they reject the idea of Jesus being God's son, the Muslim religion views him as the greatest prophet before the coming of Muhammad. Hinduism reveres Jesus as one of their thousands of different gods or goddesses. The Mormon religion claims that Jesus is the spirit brother of Satan. This, all these religions mention Jesus. He's in there somewhere, and they revere him. But perhaps the greatest indication of the significance of Jesus' life is seen in the fact that we divide history according to his time on this earth. We mark time by BC, before Christ, and AD, Anno Domino, the year of our Lord. And with this in mind, Oxford theologian Alistair McGrath points out one of history's greatest ironies. He points out that even the lives of those who were utterly opposed to Christ and all he stood for are dated with reference to him. Whether it be Roman Emperor Nero or Joseph Stalin or the atheist Richard Dawkins, when they died, they all died in the year of our Lord, A.D. So you can see that no matter how you approach this, no matter where you look, no one has had more impact on human history than Christ Jesus. And you may be thinking to yourself, why is this so? Why would this first century itinerant pastor from a poor family be more significant than all other individuals? Well, the, the reason is simple. Jesus was and is the Christ, the one and only Son of God. As you know, for several months now, we've been studying John's account 
of the gospel of Jesus' life. And you should know by now that John wrote this gospel to convince his readers of that fact. He writes in John 20, 31, the things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in him. You should also remember that over the last few chapters, we've seen an ongoing verbal battle going on between Jesus and the scribes and the Pharisees. There are battles in which Jesus has repeatedly claimed to be the Messiah, God become flesh. It's a claim that the majority, the vast majority of them have disputed. Well, in our text for today, Jesus makes this claim in the most bold way he ever could. It's, it's, it's incredible, and we'll get into that in a minute. We're gonna be covering a lot of scripture today, so I may be talking faster than I normally do, and you say, well, how can you do that? Well, I just talk fast. So please turn in your Bibles to John chapter eight, and we are gonna be starting in verse 12, and while you are looking for that, let me provide you with the proper setting because this is one of those times when understanding the, the setting is absolutely essential for you to grasp the understanding of this text. And here it goes. The Feast of the Tabernacles that we had mentioned two weeks ago is still going on. Remember the purpose of this feast was to celebrate the, the exodus, those 40 years that God guided the Hebrews from bondage in Egypt to the promised land. The events of today that we are going to read about took place in the court of the women within the temple. Specifically, it took place in a portion of that courtyard that was set aside for the temple treasury. And I'll do my best to try to describe it to you. In the court of the women, there was a colonnade, or there was a porch. And in that porch, set up against the wall, there were 13 treasure chests where people would drop in their offerings. These treasure chests were called the trumpets because they were shaped like trumpets. They were narrow at the top, and they widened down toward at the bottom. And each of these chests was for a specific offering. The first two trumpet-shaped chests were there for every Jew to pay their half shekel. It went toward the upkeep of the temple. Into the third and the fourth were placed offerings used to purchase the two pigeon or turtle doves that a woman had to offer for her purification after giving birth to a child. And you may recall when Mary and Joseph brought the baby Jesus to the temple, they offered two turtle doves. Into the fifth trumpet chest, there were put contributions that went towards the cost of the wood to keep the fire altar burning. Into the sixth were dropped monies that were used to defray the cost of the incense that was used in the temple services. The seventh was for the upkeep of the golden vessels which were used also in the temple services. And in the remaining six trumpets, people dropped surplus money into there. That, that, that was money that was left over after the people paid all of the prior required offerings. I can't help but wonder, after all that, why would there be any money left over anyway? But I digress. That's a lot of different offerings. So with all of these required offerings, the temple treasury was a busy place. Perhaps it was the busiest place in the entire temple. 
It was constantly flowing with worshipers. It's a place where all of the devout Jews would find themselves. So it was also a perfect place for Christ Jesus to find an audience of people to teach. Now, you may remember me telling you earlier in this series that the opening night of this Feast of Tabernacles, that four large candelabras were, were lit in the temple. It's been said that they were so bright that they lit up the entire city. Get this, each candelabra was said to be 75 feet tall with huge bowls at the top of them. Each bowl held 10 gallons of oil and out of the, those were wicks that were made from the no longer usable garments of the priests. And these huge lights, they were meant to, to symbolize the pillar of fire that led the Israelites by night throughout the wilderness. It was the Shekinah glory of God that led them. So throughout the festival, these lights burned brightly as the wisest and the holiest of Israel's men danced before the Lord. They also sang songs of joy while the people watched and while the people waited. The celebration surrounding these candelabras served to remind the Israelites of the glory of God dwelling among them during the Exodus. And secondly, it was to show the promise of God that he would send a future light, the anointed one, the Messiah, who would release them from their bondage. This all continued until the culmination of the feast on that final day. And that's when those tremendous lights would be extinguished. And it served as a reminder that God had not yet sent the Messiah. Well, at this very moment, in this perfect place, and at this perfect time, right as those candelabras are being extinguished, and darkness now fills the courtyard, Jesus stands up and he says to that huge crowd of, pro, of pious Jews in John chapter eight, verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. There really couldn't be a more spectacular way to say this. There couldn't be a more powerful time or a more powerful place for Jesus to say who he was. The fulfillment of the festival, the Messiah of God was right there in their midst. He had finally come. Not a light, but the light. The long-awaited Messiah of God. Well, the Pharisees knew what Jesus was saying. So they immediately challenged him on this. In fact, over the next 47 verses that we're gonna go through, yes, 47 verses, bear with me. Some of you ain't read three verses in your lifetime. You need 47 verses today. Over the next, my wife looks at me like I'm so harsh. I'm sorry, I just do these things to be funny. It comes over me. I don't know why I say those things, I just do. Bear with me. Look at verse 13. The Pharisees challenged him. Here you are, appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. 
They were saying that Jesus' claim to be the Messiah was not valid because there were no witnesses to back him up. On to verse 14 through 18. Jesus answered, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you have no idea where I come from or where I'm going. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decisions are true, because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. Jesus responds to them by saying they are mistaken, because in fact, he has two witnesses, himself and God the Father. On to verse 19. Then they asked him, where is your father? You do not know me or my father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Wow. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put. Yet no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Once more, Jesus said to them, I am going away and you will look for me and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. This made the Jews ask, will he kill himself? Is that why he says, where I go, you cannot come? But he continued, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die on your sins. If you do not believe that I am he, you will indeed die in your sins. Then ignoring what Jesus just said, they ask him to identify himself. Look at verse 25. Who are you? They asked. And Jesus reminds them what he's been telling them all along, who he is and why he came. Just what I've been telling you from the beginning, Jesus replied. I have much to say in judgment of you, but he who sent me is trustworthy. And what I have heard from him, I tell the world. They did not understand that he was telling them about his father. So Jesus said, when you have lifted up the son of man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own but speak just what the father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. Even as he spoke, many people believed in him. To the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Well, at this, they get defensive. Look at verse 33. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? So Jesus warns them that, that sin enslaves everybody, even the descendants of Abraham. Look at his response in verse 34 through 38. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed, amen? I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you are looking for a way to kill me because you have no room for my word. I am telling you what I have seen in the Father's presence, and you are doing what you have heard from your father. Abraham is our father, they answered. 
If you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you would do what Abraham did. As it is, you are looking for a way to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You are doing the works of your own father. We are not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. So they, they piously respond by telling Jesus that God is their father and he of all people shouldn't be bringing up this subject of parentage because everybody knows he was illegitimate. Now look at verse, verses 42 through 47. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me for I have come here from God. I have not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks, excuse me, when he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I am telling the truth, why don't you believe me? Whoever belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. The Jews answered him, aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? Now if their previous jab of telling Jesus he was an illegitimate child wasn't bad enough, they follow up this verbal blow by calling Jesus the very worst name that they can think of. I've shared with you how Samaritans and Jews loathed each other. They called him a Samaritan, but they said that he was a demon-possessed Samaritan to boot. On to verse 49. I am not possessed by a demon, said Jesus, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. I am not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Very truly, I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. At this they exclaimed, now we know that you are demon-possessed. Abraham died, and so did the prophets. Yet you say that whoever obeys your word will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus replied, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not know, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and obey his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. Jesus counters by telling them that he knew Abraham. And that gets their attention. Verse 57 and 58. You are not 50 years old, they said to him, and you have seen Abraham? Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. And with those last two words, that phrase that God used to identify himself to Moses, Jesus was once again claiming that he was God in the flesh. They understand this claim. And so they begin to throw more than just words at Jesus. Look at verse 59. At this, 
They picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. After reading all that, I want to go back to that original statement that Jesus made that ignited this lengthy 47-verse debate that we just went through. Jesus stands up as those huge candelabras are being extinguished, symbolizing the hope of the coming Messiah, and he says, hey, it's me. Here I am. I'm the Messiah. I am the light of the world. In that statement, Jesus claims, again, that he was God in the flesh. And it's no wonder that the scribes and Pharisees understood this because so much of the Bible uses light as a metaphor. Light is used throughout the scriptures in connection with Christ Jesus. Isaiah 9-2, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of, dark, of deep darkness, a light has dawned. And this continues in the New Testament when Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, prophesied about the coming king in Luke 1, 78 and 79. Through the tender mercy of our God, with which the day spring from on high has visited us to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. When Simeon took baby Jesus into his arms, when he was dedicated in the temple, he spoke of him this way in Luke 2.32 as a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. John began his gospel by saying in John 1, 4 through 5, in him was life and the life was the light of men and the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. So what I want to focus on this morning is since we know that Jesus is the light of the world and we also know the many characteristics of light, then what does this tell us about our Lord? What does light do that only God does? Well, I'd like to present four truths to you this morning regarding God's light and what it does for us. And the first one is this, light gives life. Think about it, light sets our biological clocks. It triggers our brain, the sensations of color. It, it supplies energy for things to grow. Without the light of the sun, plants would die. And so would you and I if we didn't get vitamin D in some other way. Light is eternally a life-giving source. Light gives life, and so does God. Abundant, meaningful life. And as we get to know him and we join him in his purposes, we begin to realize that life without him is more like death than it is life. FTT, not FTD, the florist people, FTD is an acronym that is used to describe an ailment where for unknown reasons, a newborn infant is unable to gain weight or to grow. It stands for failure to thrive. Sometimes something is off in an infant's metabolism for reasons that no one can understand. Sometimes it happens when a parent or a caregiver is suffering with depression and it seems to get passed down to the baby. 
FTT is one of those mysterious phrases that sounds like an explanation, but actually explains absolutely nothing. It's simply a failure to thrive. And it was John Ortberg who points out that this is an effective illustration of the human condition without Christ Jesus. Without Jesus, people fail to thrive. Without God, people wander through meaningless lives. Without God, people reach out for joy in vain. I think that's probably why there are literally hundreds of books written every year about how to be happy. People yearn for purpose. They yearn for hope. They yearn for some kind of joy in their life, but they look for it in all the wrong places. And the fact is, without God, our lives are lifeless and we fail to thrive. In his book, The Spirit of Disciplines, Dallas Willard writes this, although we have tended to think of the word salvation as the forgiveness of sins or the escape from punishment, it actually has much, a much more robust meaning for the writers of scripture. He continues, the simple and wholly adequate word for salvation in the New Testament is life. Jesus said, I am come that they might have life and that they may have it more abundantly. And he that hath the Son hath life. I like what the Apostle Paul talked about in Ephesians chapter 2 when he said, even when we were dead through our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ Jesus. So this is the fallen human condition, failure to thrive, and that's the way life is without God. But when Jesus comes in, he brings us life. He brings us meaningful life. He brings us purpose. And purpose gives us a joy for living. That's why John says at the beginning of his gospel in, in chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Well, there's a second thing that light does that only God does. Light reveals. It enables us to see things that were there all along, things that were hidden by the darkness. Let me put it this way. Darkness conceals, but light reveals. In a similar way, Jesus shines a light of truth onto our lives so that we can see things that we wouldn't otherwise see. I like how C.S. Lewis puts it. He says, I believe in Christ like I believe in the sun, not only because I see it, but because by it, all things are seen. We see this principle here in John 8, because in this discussion with these men, Jesus shined the light of truth on the very things that they were blind to. For example, Jesus illuminated the fact that the Jews' heritage would not save them, that they too needed a relationship with God. The problem was that these Jews had gone way too far in their admiration of Father Abraham. They thought that Abraham was so good that he had earned the favor of God, and we know the Bible says that he has, but not just for himself, but there would be automatic favor for his descendants forever and ever, and no matter what they did or how they chose to live their lives. And Jesus was trying to open their minds so, so that they could see the flaws in that kind of thinking. And unfortunately, we see people blinded by the same thing in our day and age. People say, well, of course I'm a Christian. I was born a Christian. I was born into a Christian family. 
Being a Christian has nothing to do with birth. Did you know that Hugh Hefner was raised in a minister's home? Did you know that Joseph Stalin studied for the priesthood? Did you know that Mao Zedong was raised under missionary teachings? Birth nor heritage gets us into heaven, ladies and gentlemen. Rebirth is what is required. The rebirth that results in an individual who makes a personal decision, like we prayed earlier, to confess our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. Another bit of truth that Jesus highlighted on that day was when he told those men they were enslaved and that he had come to set them free. These religious leaders were incensed by those words because they placed a very high view on freedom. To even suggest that a Jew was a slave was a major insult. It was a slap in the face. In fact, you may remember when the Romans cornered the Jewish zealots on Masada, they committed suicide rather than be taken into slavery. Well, Jesus is telling them, he says, you are all in denial. Open your eyes. You are enslaved. Sin enslaves you. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Even Socrates understood this when he wrote these words. How can you call a man free when his pleasures rule over him? Without Jesus living in us, we are all slaves to our desires. Without the freedom that makes that possible, we are all enslaved by sin. What's worse is the fact is without him, we don't even see that. Before long, we don't even see sin as sin. We rationalize and, and we justify our sinful actions. We value tolerance and not truth. This week I read about a construction worker named Patrick Lawler who thought he had a toothache. For almost a week he tried painkillers and ice packs to reduce the swelling. And when nothing brought him relief, he finally went to the dental office where his wife worked. And only after the dentist took an x-ray did Patrick learn the true source of his toothache. He had a four and a half inch nail in his head. When the dentist reported their discovery to Patrick's wife, they, she thought they were joking. But the x-rays that they took revealed the truth. The nail had entered through his mouth, just missing his right eye. The incident had happened six days earlier when Patrick was working with a nail gun that backfired. One of the nails shot into his mouth and embedded itself, but Patrick didn't even realize it. He merely complained about a toothache and blurry vision. He even tried ice cream to soothe the pain. After the nail was discovered, surgeons in a Denver hospital successfully removed it after four hours of surgery. And although it was a rare injury, one neurosurgeon said this, and I quote, this is the second one we've seen in this hospital where the person was injured by a nail gun and didn't actually realize the nail had been embedded in their skull. I share this to illustrate the fact that like the powerful light of an x-ray, 
that exposed the nail in this man's head, Jesus shines the light of truth onto our lives so that we can see our sins. And not just see our sins, but to see the damage that sin creates in our life. And so also that we can decide to turn away, to do an about face from our sinful ways. Confession is really an invitation from God to do some surgery in our own soul, to wash away our sins, to help heal the damage that sin has caused. Well, here's the third thing that light does that only God does. Light guides. Jesus said in verse 12, he who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Many years ago, I went to the Carlsbad Caverns, and as we worked our way through the caverns, they finally took us to a spot that was kind of a clearing in a large room where there was kind of a, a bench that was made out of stone. And they asked every one of us, about 25 of us in our group, to take a seat. The reason? They told us that for one minute, they were going to turn off all the lights, and they, they also asked us to be quiet and not speak during that minute because the experience of both no light and no sound is probably something that few of us have ever experienced before. And I remember thinking to myself, well, this ought to be cool. But I got to tell you, when they turned out those lights, my anxiety level started to rise up because my mind started going in a bunch of different directions. And that minute to me seemed like 10 minutes. I couldn't have been happier when they turned those lights back on because I had been thinking all along, what would happen? What if those lights don't come back on? And we're stuck down here a couple miles in the earth with 25 people that don't know their way out either and one guide and nobody has lights to get us out. I, I, was, I was getting nervous about that. I mean, you could not see your hand in front of your face. And it was quiet. There was zero noise. It was total darkness. And I'm imagining how we would have gotten out of that place. Well, in this dark world, we all need the guidance of an all-knowing God. And he promises to do that for us. He promises to guide us through our life. And the psalmist expresses our desire when he prays this in Psalm 43.3. Oh, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. In Isaiah 30.21, God answers that kind of prayer saying this. Your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it, whenever you turn to your right hand or whenever you turn to the left. David, the shepherd boy turned king, knew this about God. David was full of the realization of God's willingness to guide us. Do you remember his words in Psalm 139? Verse one through three says, you have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Then down to verses 7 through 10. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me your right hand will hold me fast. The Bible is full of situations where God has proved David's statements to be true, he, where he willingly and specifically guided someone. 
Noah was told to build a boat, to build an ark, and God told him exactly how to do it. Abram was, was instructed to leave his country and go to a place that God would show him. Once Abraham got up and started moving, God did. God guided Abraham's servant so that he could locate a wife for Isaac. During that 40-year journey we've been talking about, when God guided the people from, from slavery in Egypt into the promised land, in addition to the pillar of, of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, he also provided them with great details on the smallest of decisions. He said, if you get sick, this is how you will get well, and this is how you protect yourself from other people getting infected, and if you're hungry, this is what you can eat, and this is what you should avoid. He was specific. When it came time to build a temple, God gave Solomon very specific instructions right down to the measurements of the temple utensils. The shepherds were given specific instruction that guided them to the Christ child. The wise men were given a star to light their way. After Jesus' birth in a dream, Joseph was instructed to flee to Egypt with his family in order to avoid Herod's wrath. The book of Acts might as well be entitled the book of guidance. First, the apostles are guided to wait until they are empowered by the Holy Spirit. And after that, the apostles were imprisoned. Two of the apostles were imprisoned. And God sent an angel to guide them out of jail. Before appointing deacons, the apostles sought and received God's guidance. Philip was instructed by God to go to a place where he could minister to an Ethiopian official and then was instantly transported to another place of ministry in a place called Azotus. Ananias was guided by God to go and to pray for the persecutor Saul. Peter was guided to go into the house of Cornelius. I could go on and on demonstrating to you this beautiful aspect of God's guidance in people's lives. All of these examples should clearly remind us of what is said in Isaiah 58, 11. The Lord will guide you continually. Can you grasp this wonderful truth this morning? God is willing to guide you and I in every aspect of our life. The same God that guided these men and women that we've just read about in the scriptures. He wants to guide your life and my life. He invites us into a, into a relationship with him through which he promises to point us in the right direction when we come to every intersection on this road of life. We don't have to wander in the darkness any longer, ladies and gentlemen. So light gives life, it reveals, and it guides. But here's one final thing I'll mention. Light removes fear. This is good news. Because this life is full. This life in this fallen world is full of things that cause us to fear. And I have never seen people more fearful today than I've seen in my entire life. Health problems, financial woes, family issues, just to name a few. And though this book was published over a decade ago, I want you to hear this quote from Max Lucado's book titled Fearless, because I believe we can all relate to this. In fact, you can, you can probably put in some different words here, and it will fit the day we're living in. He writes, each sunrise brings new reasons to fear. Layoffs at work, slowdowns in the economy, flare-up in the Middle East, downturns in the housing market, breakouts of the Al-Qaeda cells, some 
demented dictators collecting nuclear warheads the way others collect fine wines. A new strain of flu is crossing the border. The plague of our day, terrorism, begins with the word terror. We are peppered with bad news, global warming, asteroid attack, genocide, wars, earthquakes, AIDS. News programs disgorge enough hand-wringing information to warn an advisory caution. This news report is best viewed in the confines of an underground fault in Iceland. We fear being sued, finishing last, going broke. We fear the mole on the back, the new kid on the block, the sound of the clock as it ticks closer to the grave. We create elaborate security systems and legislate stronger military, yet we depend on mood-altering drugs more than any other generation in history. Fear, it seems, to take a hundred-year lease on the building next door and set up shop. The truth is that we are the most worried culture that has ever lived. For the first time since World War II, parents expect that life for the next generation will be worse than it was for themselves. The prevalence of fear, it is a sad thing because fear is dreadful. There is no button that you can push to make it go away. And while you're trying to find a way to deal with it, it literally sucks the life right out of you. It drains you of your contentment. And it can make a grown man curl up in a fetal position on the floor. It's no wonder why Jesus waged a war against fear. Like, a, like an encouraging light that dispels a fear-inducing darkness, Jesus comes and tells us that we no longer need to be afraid. In fact, the most common command in the scripture is, it comes in some form of these two words, fear not. God takes our fears seriously, ladies and gentlemen. Here's some examples. Isaiah 41.10, we're going to fly. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Philippians 4.6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Deuteronomy 31.6, be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Mark 5.36, do not fear, only believe. John 14.1, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Deuteronomy 31.8, it is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Matthew 6.25, therefore I say to you, do not worry about life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Luke 12.32, do not fear, little flock. It is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And here's one of my favorite comforting bits of encouragement found in Psalm 27.1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? God's light removes fear. Are you walking in his light today? Truthfully, I can't think of a better time 
to say that than, than to you than right now in a time where fear is running rampant in our nation and in our world. Scott, will you guys come forward and help me close this down? We've already had a time at the altar this morning. I'm not going to ask you to come up here unless you want to. As you know, this altar is open all the time. You can come down here and pray whenever you want. But I want to close this service in prayer, and I don't want you to just simply listen to my prayer. I want you to pray to God in your own way and in your own words. I want to pray that we would open ourselves up to the fullness of God in our lives as we ask ourselves, am I truly living in the light of God? As we've discussed, God's light brings life, abundant life. Are you experiencing the abundant life that he offers today? God's light reveals. That's where the word revelation comes from. Is God trying to reveal a new truth to you? Has he been trying? Is he knocking on your door and you refuse to listen? Is God revealing an area in your life that, that he wants you to change, but you're not paying attention? God's light, it says, also guides, but maybe you are still navigating every step of your life. And it's just not getting you to where it is that you want to go. Maybe you're preventing God from guiding the steps of your life out of fear that maybe where he's going to take you might hold a greater challenge than you desire. So you selfishly keep him at arm's length and away from you and continue on with your daily decision making and the process because the rest of it you just think is going to be too complicated. God's light, as I said lastly, removes fear. I think every one of us faces fear in one way or another. And at this time in our life, there's a lot of things that create fear. You might be so bound up in fear this morning that fear has paralyzed you. I don't know. So if you can look at these things that God's light provides and you're not experiencing them in your life, is it possible that maybe you're not seeking the fullness of God in your life? Maybe you're holding on to other less important things and putting them ahead or higher on the priority scale than you are your relationship with Jesus. So when we pray, I want you to pray and invite Christ to have complete lordship over your life. Perhaps there are things this morning that you need to turn over to him. Things that you're holding on to that you have built up to be so important in your life that in the whole scheme of things, they mean nothing and yet they are holding you back from experiencing these things that come in a life serving Jesus Christ. Ask him to reveal to you these things that are preventing you from having the abundant life that you desire or the guidance that you need or, or to remove the fear that you're suffering from. And commit to him this morning that you will position him first so you can begin to recognize the things that he is so desperately trying to reveal to you. But secondly, I also want you to pray that you will respond in obedience to the things that he shows you. If we all lived our lives in this manner, 
all four of these characteristics that we've talked about today would be active in us. And the truth is, I think that we shortchange ourselves by keeping God at arm's length when he fully wants to lead your life every step of the way in every conceivable way. So let's pray that we don't allow our flesh to get in the way of truly having the kind of relationship with Christ that I know you desperately want. We all desperately want it. But we're sometimes our worst enemy. We get in the way from it happening. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus and you didn't pray that prayer that we prayed earlier on in the service, you could do so right now. I'd like to ask you all to stand to your feet if you would. I'd like to ask you to bow your heads and pray yourself as I pray this closing prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus. And we thank you, Father, for your word. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that you sent him so that he could die and rise again from the grave so that we could have eternal life in the presence of God the Father. What a precious gift you've given us. But you haven't just given us the gift of eternal life, Father. You've given us the gift of abundant life as we walk and trod this earth. And yet many of us aren't living that kind of a life for a variety of reasons. And Lord, most of the time it boils down to that we really have not humbled ourselves before you and we really haven't given you our all. We've just given you bits and portions of who we are. And we let other things, other obstacles stand in the way so that we won't have any time to be with you and to spend with you. And so God, I pray for myself, I pray for my church family, God, that we would open our hearts to the abundance of Christ in our lives, the fullness of who you are, that we would not just give you a fraction of who we are, but we would give you all of who we are. We would give you our gifts and our talents. We would give you our resources and our time. And we would not be ashamed to share your goodness with other people. Father, I pray that as you reveal things in our lives that we are holding on to, that we need to set free, that we need to let go of, that we would have the ability to, in fact, release them to you. And like a vacuum, you will fill whatever is missing. Father, we want to be filled with you. We want to be filled with your presence and with your spirit, allowing us to live vital lives for the kingdom of God. I ask that we would all be willing to pray courageous prayers like that. And Father, as we leave this place today, I ask that your Holy Spirit would go with us, guiding and directing our lives and our paths, the places we go, the things that we do, the conversations that we have, that they would be conversations designed to build people up and not tear people down. Lord, that we would shine as bright lights in a very dark world and that light would be such that it would attract others to us wanting to know what is different about us. And then you would open that door of dialogue and we could tell them about your goodness. And of course, we know that you would give us the words to speak at that time. Father, help us to have encounters with people this week where we can share your goodness with someone else. I also pray that between now and next week, you would keep us safe from COVID, safe from any sicknesses or diseases or illnesses. Keep us safe from any accidents that might befall us and prevent us from coming into the house of God. And then as we join together next, next week, Lord, that we would come together and gather and worship you in spirit and in truth. 
As we leave here today, Holy Spirit, pray that you would reveal and continue to reveal to us the things that we need to let go of and the things that we need to embrace that only you can offer us and that we would be obedient to that and that we would embrace your fullness in our life and live the kind of life that only those who are committed to Christ can live, a life that has purpose and a life that has joy. We thank you for this time together. Thank you for your presence. We ask you to guide direct us till we gather together again. Keep us safe. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. never attended a Pentecostal church before, you may wonder what that is. You've heard of uh, speaking in tongues. That is a message in tongues the Holy Spirit gave to this woman. She spoke it outward. It says in the Bible, in a public setting like this, public service, when someone speaks in tongues, there must be an interpretation that follows in our own language. Otherwise, we would not know what was being said. What she said, if you didn't hear her, the main thrust was seek first the kingdom of God and all of these other things will be added unto you. I think that's kind of the theme of today's message, is it not? It's amazing how God's spirit works in unison with what someone prepares and gets up here and feebly tries to present to you. But I'm thankful for the Holy Spirit. I'm thankful for obedient people who will walk in the spiritual gifts that they've been given. Do not let something like that, in fact, if, 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 if you found fear in that, then we really, really need to talk. In my opinion, it is one of the most beautiful things that could ever happen in a church service because we are actually getting a message from the throne room of God. He is watching us today. He is present here. He knows your needs. He knows your weaknesses. He knows your fears. And just as I've been preaching for the last 40 minutes, if we allow him fullness in our life, we can overcome those things through his power, through his spirit that indwells us. Thank you for your obedience, sister. God bless you and thank you for being here. <laughs>